Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, and I do want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show for making this show uh, economically viable. They are Airway Energy, Aravista Gold, Blue Sky Uranium, Bravada Gold, Brazil Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, Eurasian Minerals, Millrock Resources, Northern Free Gold, and Riverside Resources. Well, we have uh, Naomi Ariskas back with us and a, a few more questions with the precious amount of time we have left with her. Um, Naomi, I want to ask you about Chapter 6 of your book. Uh, and by the way, before we go any further, uh, tell our listeners where where they can follow your work. Is it, do you have a blog, or uh, is there a place where they can at least buy Merchants of Doubt? Yeah, I don't have a blog, because if I did, I wouldn't get any more books written, but they can buy <laughs> Merchants of Doubt on any of the major online booksellers. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Powell's, if they prefer independent booksellers. Uh, so, yeah, it's easy to find. And we do have a website for the book, merchantsofdoubt.org, in which there are links to additional resources. If anyone wants to check some of the primary sources, we've put links to that, and also an erratum, so any errors we can just you know quickly put on the erratum mm-hmm. so they're corrected. 
Yeah, and are you writing another book? Because I know the last time we spoke, you were you were thinking of it. Yeah, yeah. So I have a book on the history of oceanography that I've been working on for some time, and then Eric Conway and I are, are still still brainstorming what the next project should be. So that's uh, to be continued. Okay. Well, um, we we thank you very much for taking a few minutes to talk to us and not writing your book, but we want to read your next book when it comes out for sure. Good, thank you. I want to uh, in chapter six. I found a very very. Well, all the, the the book is an easy read. Let me just tell my listeners that. Chapter six, the denial of global warming, and you talk in there about the Jasons. You say uh, you, you say that the Jasons that 1979 was a very significant year, and talk to us about why that's true, and, and tell us a little bit about the Jasons. Sure, thanks. Yeah, well, this was one of the discoveries we made that we thought was one of the most significant findings. So many people think that climate change is an issue that has been pushed by left-wing environmentalists, you know, liberal greenie types. Sure. But the reality actually is quite different from that. And one of the earliest reports on climate change was written in 1979 by a committee called the Jasons. So the Jasons are a group of scientists, very, very prominent, very successful, somewhat reclusive, mostly physicists, but also some biologists and chemists, who were established in the 1960s to give advice to the Department of Defense on scientific and technical issues relevant to national security. And in the 1960s, that mostly meant nuclear weapons. But over time, the committee has evolved and changed, and now they give advice on a lot of different issues, including homeland security, terrorism, other sorts of things. So in the 1970s, the Jason Committee was asked by the Department of Energy to look into this question of the possibility of climate change caused by human activities, particularly carbon dioxide from greenhouse gases. And in their study, they concluded, this was 1979, a group of physicists, um, not environmentalists, um, concluded that, yes, if we continued to increase carbon dioxide, that a doubling of carbon dioxide would lead to a temperature increase of probably somewhere around 2 to 3 degrees. And they also said that this would be a very serious problem because we knew that agriculture and water supply were very sensitive to small changes in temperature and that it could lead to political conflict if there were water shortages or um, crop failures as a result. We know from our historical work that that report was taken very seriously. It reached the White House, and the White House in 1979 under um, President Carter asked the U.S. National Academy of Sciences for a second opinion and that second opinion was something called the Charney Report, mm-hmm. uh, headed a committee headed by MIT professor Jill Charney, again, not an environmentalist, but an academic meteorologist. And the Charney Report essentially affirmed what the Jasons had said. And it was that affirmation by two different independent scientific committees, one mostly physicists, one mostly earth scientists, that led to the U.S. government uh, making the commitment that we needed to invest more fully in scientific research on this question because of its potential political, economic, and social importance. And so almost all of the scientific work that has been done on the last 30 years, in a way, can be traced back to 1979 and to that crucial insight that this was a problem we really needed to understand. So now if we fast forward today, what we find is that those early predictions um, have really held up rather well and that those early predictions are starting to come true. Some of the very worries they had about impacts on agriculture, impacts on water supply, extreme weather events, we're now seeing some of those impacts beginning to occur. We did have quite a drought, as I recall, uh, last summer, I believe, in the Midwest. Is there some belief that that's tied to global warming? Well, exactly, and this gets into the whole thorny thing about you know individual events. So just as you can never say that any one particular smoker died 
of lung mm-hmm. cancer because of smoking. Nevertheless, we know that smoking is very dangerous and that it causes a host of diseases. So it's the same with climate change. Yeah. We yeah. know that climate change is changing the weather systems. We've had a whole series of extreme weather events. 2012 was record-breaking for extreme weather events, droughts, floods, wildfires. And the pattern is exactly consistent with what we would expect given the fact that we have this additional energy uh, in the climate system. We, uh, there was a concept, uh, thermal inertia, that was uh, discussed in Chapter 6 of your book. Could you tell our listeners what that means? Sure. Well, thermal inertia just refers to the fact that it's hard to heat up the Earth. The Earth is very, very big, uh, so it takes a lot of energy to heat it up. That's why the fact that we have a degree centigrade of warming now is, is actually very significant, even though it sounds like a small number. And a great deal of the thermal inertia in the planet on the planet is because of the oceans. The heat capacity of water is very high. It takes a lot of energy to heat up water. And so the oceans slow warming. And so back in the 70s when these committees first looked at this question, one of the warnings they gave was that it might look for a long time like not much was happening mm-hmm. because the oceans would be absorbing the warming. But don't be fooled by that uh, because it doesn't mean that the system as a whole isn't warming up. And it doesn't mean that we don't have to worry about it. And they worried, um, one of the scientists involved specifically said, he was worried that we would not realize the warming was underway until it was very far along because of the thermal inertia. And in fact, that is exactly what's happened. So we have not yet feel, felt, d- despite Hurricane Sandy and how bad it was, the reality is we actually haven't yet felt the brunt of most of the warming uh, because the oceans, in a sense, have protected us. But we are starting to feel it now. And, of course, the warming of the ocean is not a good thing because it has adverse impacts on a lot of life. Uh, it affects fisheries. And the other really important piece, which was not recognized in 1979 but is recognized now, is that it's not just the heat that gets absorbed by the oceans. It's also carbon dioxide. But when carbon dioxide dissolves in water, it forms carbonic acid, mm. the same thing that you have in Coca-Cola, um, and carbonic acid is an acid, so it means that the ocean becomes more acidic, and scientists call that ocean acidification. And we now have clear scientific evidence that ocean acidification is, in fact, taking place. So we people, even though we might like to think that we can't change the planet, that the planet is so big and we're so small, but we have actually now changed the temperature of the atmosphere, and we've changed the pH of the oceans. And I would think that would have profound, could have profound uh, effects on the life in the oceans. Exactly. It's not just that, you know, I'm some kind of environmentalist who says, oh, my goodness, who are we to mess with the oceans? No, no, it's much more practical than that. Um, life in the oceans is very sensitive to temperature and is very sensitive to acidity. So when the pH of the ocean begins to drop, and scientists have already documented this, it affects the ability <clears throat> of some ocean organisms to make their shells including some of the um, zooplankton at the base of the food chain. So we are having impacts that are potentially affecting the base of the food chain in the oceans. So I think your readers, your listeners probably can figure out why that matters. It matters. Uh, indeed, it matters. Uh, but yet, you know, we're, we're looking at politics and people, uh, they, they're fighting this, Naomi. You know, uh, and going back in Chapter 6 of your book, the uh, Nirenberg Report. It was very interesting how it was sort of a split decision, wasn't it, between mm-hmm. economists who sort of opined that global warming wasn't a problem, as I and and then you had the scientists who did, 
And but it seems to me that this is like a political football that gets thrown around. So I want to ask you, what about? Um, you know, we have an Obama administration. It doesn't seem to make much difference whether it's Democrat or Republican. Yeah. Neither. Yeah. Uh, maybe the Democrats are somewhat more sensitive to this because they don't they don't have as much resistance, it seems, to government intervention as Republicans tend to philosophically, perhaps. But right. but, but right. both are influenced by the lobbyist and the big money interest, the large corporate interest. Now I'm I'm seeing, and you and I talked the last time. I think you offered the notion that maybe some sort of a carbon tax and a uh, a cap in trade or some sort of a of a uh, a credit system could be used uh, in the free market that could help us uh, uh, get get a grip of this uh, this problem of global warming. Do you still believe that? Yeah, I do, and I think, as you pointed out, I mean, so this is what we addressed in the last chapter of the book, and you're right, you know, as you say, we talked about this last time, so in the book we explore and try to understand the argument, and it's a legitimate argument, that some of, pe- some of the people who have been resistant to accepting the scientific evidence are not resisting it because the scientific evidence isn't good science, but they're resisting it because it seems like an excuse for a massive government program right. to control the climate. And I agree with those people. I don't, I'm not in favor of massive government programs that aren't needed. So it is very important to understand the science because it's important to understand why the science shows us unequivocally that we need to do something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if people are listening, I hope what they would take from this is the scientific evidence is overwhelming. There is no question that the climate is changing, and it's changing in dangerous and damaging and costly, really costly ways. Oh. But then the question is, what do we do about it? And so what, what we talked about last time was, so some good, sensible people have pointed out, well, if, if you don't want a massive government intervention, then the, the obvious answer is to try to think about if there's a market solution. Mm-hmm. And that's where the whole idea of a carbon tax or a BTU tax came from in the first place. Mm-hmm. That essentially what you're saying is that the price we pay for fossil fuels does not reflect the true cost. Right. But the true cost has to include the environmental cost. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, the $60 billion that you New Yorkers will now be paying to clean up the mess of Hurricane Sandy is the clear and obvious proof of this, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, absolutely. Right. You know. And so economists have recognized this for a long time, and this isn't a new idea, and they call it Pagovian taxes. There's actually something in the New Yorker magazine this week about this very idea. And... Uh, Pigot was a French economist who early on recognized that one of the solutions you could take to, the, to this question of external costs is simply to have a tax and to have a tax that reflects these costs and then use the revenue to address the cost. So in the case of a carbon tax, you could say, well, what we should do is have a carbon tax and then we put it into a fund for climate mitigation and adaptation. So if New York now has to spend... I mean, I don't, what is the estimate for what it's going to take to, you know, repair the subways? I yeah, don't I don't that. know. It's a big number, and let's, we're, let's we're say, looking to socialize that and get you folks in, in San Diego to help us pay for it. Well, so. exactly, right, <laughs> and that's the whole point. We all, we all are going to end up paying for this. Yeah, we all yeah. will end up paying for crop failures in the cost of higher food prices. Mm-hmm. But in the cost, case of something that actually requires expenditure, like fixing the subways, if we had a carbon tax or an energy tax or whatever word you want to put on a Pugovian tax, you take that money, you put it in a fund, and then that fund, New York can apply to that fund to get um, money to repair the subways. Now, it's not a perfect system for a lot of reasons. I'm sure there are listeners who are immediately saying, well, how is New York going to prove that this was climate damage? So there are obviously issues that have to be worked out, but right. there are smart 
economists and political scientists who right. could do that. But also, and the more important point, I think, um, is that it helps the market give an appropriate price signal. So right now, like you say, we in San Diego are going to be subsidizing the repairs and cleanup in New York, but of course you may end up subsidizing some other problem that we end up having here in San Diego. Sure, um, sure. It's costly. It's not, there's no such thing as a free lunch is the message, Naomi, I guess, and uh, it, it applies. And, uh, and, of course, the difficulty is assessing uh, the cost of, uh, into the future. It's difficult to do, but, but certainly a market mechanism is something that should be more tolerable to, to people that are free market advocates. Once you realize that this is a problem that is being caused by human beings and, and not something beyond your control that Mother Nature is causing. Unfortunately, we're out of time. There's so much more to talk about. The Exxon Mobil, here's a, just a, a bit of news that I would pass along to my listeners and uh, perhaps just take a second to get your reaction. I, I'm reading that Exxon Mobil is now supporting the Obama administration's uh, carbon tax plan. Now, many of us are worried about uh, about corporatism and large corporate interests that might be in bed with government, but I guess if it's a problem, uh, these guys might be able to help us solve it, hopefully. Well, that's what I would hope, too, and they're certainly well-positioned to help do the right thing here, so we could hope this could be a step in the right direction. Let's hope it is. Thank you very much, Naomi, once again for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with John Rubino, and John has some ideas about, well, some profit-making possibilities uh, having to do with uh, technologies um, that can help us uh, experience a cleaner environment going into the future. Don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, once again John Rubino. John was with us so some time ago, and most of the time when we've talked to John in the past, it's had to do more with uh, economics and, uh, well, the dollar. Uh, John is a co-author with uh, James Turk, who's very well known on this show, uh, The Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It. Uh, and he authored uh, Clean Money, which is the book we want to talk to him today. It's a Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom, uh, How to Profit. And he wrote another book called How to Profit from Real Estate, uh, from the Real Estate Bus, and that was back in 2003. And he wrote another book uh, called Main Street, Not Wall Street, 1998. I'm sorry to say I have not read those other books. I think definitely John is an easy read, and it's uh, it's always a pleasure reading his stuff, so uh, it's always also a pleasure having him on the show. So welcome, John. Really good to have you again. Well, great to be back, Jay. Thanks. You are far, far away from global warming impact, it would seem, at least in terms of oceans. You're living out there somewhere in Idaho or someplace like that, right? Yeah, I'm out in Idaho where uh, a little global warming would be welcome at this time of year. Okay. (laughs) I I understand the problem, but I, I don't really deal with the impact of it very much on a day to day basis. No, most of us don't, and in New York City, we didn't either until uh, until just a few weeks back. But uh, yeah. you, your book, um, you just heard Naomi Ariskas. I guess you were listening to part of that anyway. Um, I mean, is, is, is really fossil fuels fiasco is what you talked about in Chapter 3. I think you, uh, you labeled the chapter fossil fuels fiasco. Is that, is that why? Because of this whole global warming issue? Uh, well, you know, I'm not a climate scientist, so I, I don't have the right to an opinion about um, whether we're causing global warming or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, there, there are a lot of other reasons to um, to want to get beyond the uh, the fossil fuels era. You know, and one of them is geopolitical. Every, every time we fill up our SUVs, we're sending money to Venezuela and Iran and Russia and Saudi Arabia. You know, countries that that really aren't the friends of liberal democratic capitalism mm-hmm. and so we're causing ourselves huge amounts of potential trouble in the in the future by basically financing our enemies and that that right there should be a good enough reason to uh, to want oil prices to be extremely low and for us to use as little as possible and then you know then there's the environmental side of uh, fossil fuels you know we've got yeah. air pollution from excessive burning of coal and and what uh, your previous guest was talking about uh, the acidification of the oceans mm-hmm. sounds mm-hmm. like uh, an incredibly serious problem and a lot of that is due to um, coal-fired power plants mm-hmm. yeah and, indeed uh... I mean, yeah, and, and you know we get our coal domestically by a, a lot of it by blowing off the tops of mountains in Appalachia, and and really you know destroying the environment for um, a mile in every direction when we do that, and, and you know wiping out indigenous communities of people who aren't um, influential enough to to stop the process, and then you know fracking here in in the U.S. which is booming, uh, which involves extracting natural gas by pumping poisonous industrial chemicals into the ground. And, uh, you know, it might take them a while to bubble back up to the surface, but you wonder what Pennsylvania and Ohio are going to look like 100 years from now after we've pumped literally millions of tons of, of poisons into the ground and, uh, and, you know, waited for them to come back up. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons that, uh, that fossil fuels aren't the ideal energy source mm-hmm. and a lot of incentives for us to be moving beyond this era, you know, fossil fuels allowed us to build um, a, uh, you know, scientifically advanced culture 
because uh, because of all the um, the extra energy it provided us. Well, now it's time to use that science to move on to energy sources that aren't as damaging to our, our health and the environment and our, our you know our geopolitical position in the world. And uh, you know we're we're close to the point where the new technologies are workable. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, uh, getting back to the fracking issue, Naomi mentioned that uh, there's also, with the drilling, there's an escape of methane gas that uh, that comes out, and uh, depending on the drilling practices, too. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of, it's it's complex, no, no question about it. There's a lot of issues at hand, and I, I think the biggest thing, though, is that, uh, you know, it's hard for people to see what the costs are into the future. I mean, this has been uh, a problem for quite some time with, uh, you know, in our industrial society, is that uh, the damages don't show up until much, much later. And then, and then you, as you say, it's hard to know what Ohio and Pennsylvania might look like <clears throat> in, uh, you know, in, uh, 20, 30 years from now with all those uh, poisonous substances pumped into the ground. Um, well, certainly, uh, you know, you talk in Chapter 3. I'd like to just run a quote by our listeners because I thought it was, it was quite good and, and um, you said, uh, when you think about it, the idea of an energy shortage is ludicrous. The earth is bathed in free energy in the form of sunlight. The wind, more free energy, blows continuously in many places. Tides go in and out, rivers flow, plants absorb and store sunlight, just waiting for us to turn it into electricity and heat. And yet, here we are, with oil, gas prices soaring, and wars big and small being fought over access to rapidly shrinking oil fields. And the climate seems to be changing in potentially very bad ways, possibly as a result of our burning oil and coal. What happened? You raised the question. So we have chosen fossil fuels over other green, uh, greener alternatives, alternative energy, renewable forms of energy. Wasn't that simply a result of fossil fuels being seemingly at least in the short run much more economically efficient uh and i mean as a as a believer in free market capitalism i want to believe that that was probably the the right thing to do yeah well it, it, there are two points to um to this question one is um yes alternative energy sources have have been historically very expensive and then, you know they're getting cheaper and cheaper but they they aren't quite to the point, most of them yet, where uh, where they're um, able to go head to head with gas and coal and oil at at today's prices in the marketplace. But a big part of that is because we don't allocate costs correctly to fossil fuels, as, as you mentioned a second ago. Um, if we included the cost of, for instance, pacifying the Middle East in order to to, uh, to keep the oil flowing from Iran and Iraq and the rest of the Middle East, um, if we if we allocated that to a barrel of oil, um, we'd see the price maybe twice what it is right now. You know, so so gas would be eight or ten bucks a gallon, and uh, and that would change the calculus in the marketplace dramatically. And the same thing if we allocated the environmental costs of coal. To the price of coal, all of a sudden our electricity bills would soar, and mm-hmm. so we aren't doing that. You know, we fold the um, the cost of oil into the defense budget, and we fold we uh, fold the cost of coal into our health care budgets and our mm-hmm. environmental cleanup budgets, and and so we don't get a clear idea of what these things really cost. And for a market to work, you have to have good information. You know, buyers and sellers have to basically know what it is they're buying and selling, mm-hmm. and in the energy market, we don't know that. 
you know, we, we see the, our utility bills being what they are, and they're reasonably uh, low, and so we go ahead and leave the lights on all night. Or yeah. we, we go ahead and drive our SUV 50 miles on a whim. You know? and it, but, but if the, the true cost of doing those things was apparent to us, then we'd be a lot more open to, con- to conservation and to substituting other kinds of energy sources for you know, the, the original fossil fuel energy sources. And so the question is, how do we get from here to there? And that, mm-hmm. that's not an easy one. No, it's, it's certainly not an easy one. We certainly, you know, we see the struggles with respect to budget issues. I mean, another I, I, one that I just came to mind as you were talking about uh, costs of, of um, uh, you know, fossil fuels. I'm thinking depletion allowances, and I'm, and I'm thinking and reading a book uh, by um, uh, another author that we had on this show, uh, Family of Secrets. Uh, Baker is the author's last name, and he was talking about how, uh, in fact, uh, Nixon's presidency uh, and Watergate was most likely. Uh, Nixon knew nothing about Watergate, but basically, it was his his. Um, his objection to depletion allowances and the desire to pull those away that that probably caused his downfall uh, and the um, and, um, and and the Watergate issue. It's a very interesting theory, and uh, and Baker does a lot of great work suggesting that. But I, the reason I bring that up now is because it, it seems to me that what we're talking about here is politics and power and people that have the ability to to. To control policy in Washington is is really what we're talking about. So, it seems to me, John, what has to happen is the people have to have to understand first of all what's going on, so that they can raise this issue, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, see, the problem now is that um, the, the guys in charge would be very open to a carbon tax, for instance, mm-hmm. which would you know bring costs back into balance if it was imposed at the right level. But they would do it in addition to existing taxes rather uh-huh. than um, as a substitute for part of the income tax or, or sales taxes or whatever, you know, mm. as a way of, of uh, keeping our contribution to the government level. They would do it as a way to give themselves more money to play. More money. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, and so the, um, the cure would be worse than the disease in that case. And that, that's really all we're... You know, that, that's our only choice, because <laughs> the way things are set up now, you, you have very powerful interests who, who are, on the one hand, don't want any kind of tax cuts. Therefore, any new taxes will be in addition to existing taxes, tax cut, taxes, mm-hmm. and, and who don't want to change the, um, the cost basis of mm-hmm. existing energy for a lot of reasons. And so uh, the odds of, um, of us properly allocating the costs of uh, fossil fuels to the price of fossil fuels um, in the near term is probably nil. You know, it just, it's not, not going to happen. And that means we probably will continue to drift in with the current system until the current system breaks down. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to note because as I was, I was just talking to Naomi at the end, I brought to her attention uh, something that I, uh, that I just learned of earlier today, and that is that the ExxonMobil is uh, apparently supporting uh, President Obama's um, idea of a of a carbon tax and and certainly those that kind of corporate interest would be in a position to make it happen i would think but then what you're suggesting is that that would more than likely in other words exxon mobil wouldn't want to give up their depletion allowance probably um well, no they'd they, probably do it a, a deal that gives them a bigger de- depletion allowance in return for accepting a carbon tax you know it won't it won't be something where uh, the oil companies act against their shareholders' interest. Right. In the no, that's uh, exactly right. Well, we do have to go to a break now. When we come back, 
uh, John, I want to I want to pick up on some of the alternatives that might be out there. Some of the uh, the technologies that are coming along that that uh, might give us some hope for the future. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with John Rubino. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, Please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Our Vista Gold Corporation's principal asset is the Dewey Project, which currently has a 43101 compliant resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be one of the last undeveloped, low-grade, bulk tonnage potential super pits in Quebec. The Dewey Project has significant potential to further grow the resource by both step-out drilling as well as further infill drilling within the existing porphyry. Our Vista has a well-designed, extensive 35,000-meter 100-hole drill program planned for Q4 2012, with results expected in early 2013 and an updated resource estimate to follow. Our Vista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA. For further details, please visit www.arvistagold.com. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I've got John Robino back here with me. And, and John, when we went to the break, um, we were just, well, we were talking about military uh, expenses and how the military really is a hidden cost in, in our energy sector. The, the big problem is that we're, it's very difficult for people to understand what it really does cost society wide. 
to drive that big SUV down the highway, isn't it? But one of the things that you point out in your book, um, I don't remember which chapter it was, but there was a chapter on uh, that talked about conservation and how our buildings are really energy hogs. I think it was pointed out that 68% of electricity, 39% of total energy use, and 38% of carbon dioxide comes from, um, you know, is, is consumed in buildings. And, you know, it's nice to have a, an, uh, an efficient automobile that, that uses less, less gas and all that. But really, the lion's share of our energy uh, consumption is coming right from the buildings. So what about, what are some technologies that are out there, or what are some ways that buildings can cut down on the cost uh, on the energy consumption and still sure. live comfortably? Okay, well, we don't normally think of... Um, building efficiency mm-hmm. as an alternative energy source, but it, it's a huge one, especially mm-hmm. um, in older cities. For instance, uh, you know, where you are in New York City, you know, mm-hmm. walk, walk down the street and you'll see um, hundreds of buildings that were put up 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Every one of them could be retrofitted to use half the energy that they use today. Wow. And, uh, and, and the payback period for something like that is reasonably short. It's a good deal if you've got a little bit of money up front to um, increase the insulation in your building and, and close up the cracks that, that are letting cold air in during the winter and, and install better windows and things like that. And, and that's being done all over the world, and it's, it's a huge market. It's a really diffuse market because each of these products are uh, you know, made by a separate industry by, by many different companies. But it, from a societal standpoint, building efficiency is this huge positive, and it's ongoing right now because we, we understand these technologies. You, know, you don't need any scientific breakthroughs to put some caulk in a crack in a wall or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but there are technologies that, uh, that will dramatically improve the process, especially for new buildings going forward. For instance, there, there, are, um, there are smart building technologies that, um, for instance, if you walk into a room, it senses that someone's in the room and then turns on the lights. When you leave, right. the lights go off automatically. Things mm-hmm. like that save a lot of electricity in the aggregate, mm-hmm. and they're, they're being put into new buildings. Mm-hmm. And then these buildings can be connected to the uh, the smart grid, which is uh, applying information technology to the movement of electricity. And that's also going to be very big. You know, all, all of our appliances 10 years from now will talk to each other and uh, talk to the electrical grid. And, and when we hit peak power levels, the, uh, the, the grid operator will be able to come in and, and just selectively turn off our refrigerator for five minutes and our air conditioning for five minutes or whatever. And, and in that way, avoid having to build a lot of new power plants to handle just the, you know, the peak power of three days in the summer or whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, from a societal standpoint, that's going to be a, a huge energy savings going forward. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a few companies that are, uh, that, that are big in that field and, and look interesting from an investment standpoint. You know, ITRON is one. They make smart meters. What is the name of it? ITRON, I-T-R-O-N. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, where the electrical um, or the, the gas guy or the electric guy used to have to come out and read your meter. Yeah, and then write more. down what the uh, what your usage was for that month. Now they just wirelessly communicate they with do, the yes. um, the central office and uh, save a huge number of man hours. And uh, the the next step from that is to have a panel in your house that tells you how much electricity you're using in each room and each appliance. And and the idea behind that is that it's a, a huge behavior change. 
mm-hmm. process. You know, you'll you'll see that your TV set is costing you X amount per hour to run. So you'll go to your kids and say, uh, you know, guys, go outside and play. Turn off the games because <laughs> you'll know how much it's costing you. Yeah, and that's all coming. And uh, so, so smart grid is going to be huge once it gets past a few upfront problems. Like most of these technologies, um, the the hype is better than the reality, and you have to get through the learning curve or get up the learning curve a little bit before it really lives up to its potential. So if we have time, Jay, we could go into some of the problems, but I, I suspect we probably don't have time to really... Well, I, I'm wondering if uh, this would give me an opportunity now to ask you to tell our listeners where they can pick up a copy of your book. Does, does, does your book address some of these issues? I mean, they oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. A- absolutely, and it's, it's available on Amazon. Any Any bookstore should have it. John, John, do you have a, a website where people can go to and follow? Because it's not just the environmental issue. You do a lot of other things, too. No, right now I just run dollarcollapse.com, which okay. is, uh, is more of a gloom and doom kind of website. So it's not really um, applicable to the clean tech story. That's the one, uh, the book that you wrote with James Turk, of course. But uh, Yeah, the, the Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from it. That's, so, uh, so, that's more of a current story. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it's, they're both very, very important stories. And I, I do believe, as, I, you know, as Naomi and I were talking, and as I was reading her book, and, and that uh, so much of what's going on in the, uh, in the energy space and in, in terms of environmental cost is just a kick of the can down the road as we're doing so much uh, right now in the financial sector and in the in that part of the world that I live in most of the time but uh so itron is one name I, any other names in the, in the conservation space well the, because this is information technology applied yeah. to energy management you get a lot of the big infotech companies that are uh-huh. that are big in this IBM is huge in building management Cisco is big in um, um smart grid technologies mm-hmm. and so so a lot of established names have divisions that are growing rapidly in this field so sure. there, there, there's a, a lot to look at and then there's a lot of small startups which are probably too risky to to toss out now but uh, companies with very very interesting technologies are coming along and uh, should they be able to hook themselves into the process of building management and, and get contracts with the big companies that are that are putting together packages for uh, you know big office buildings and things like that. They should they should have dramatic growth prospects. So that that's a really exciting sector, but it takes a lot of stock picking skills and a lot of of in depth research before you're able to tell which one is going to su- succeed versus the five that aren't going to succeed. Right, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about. You know some of the obvious ones. Solar. Uh, do you see is the cost of solar panels, the cost of solar, uh, the equipment required to set up, say, a solar uh, setup in your house? Has that gone down, or, or how is that? What, what is that? How are the economics working out now? Solar, or do we need to, or do we need to see government subsidies in order for it to work? Well, so solar is a fascinating story because um, in the middle of the last decade, um, it it hit the peak of its hype cycle and mm-hmm. basically everybody in the world who was who had anything to do with solar power could get loans to build new factories and everybody did and mm-hmm. so we had this this huge new supply come online all at once causing a, a massive glut which sent the price of solar panels through the floor and it bankrupted a lot of the big solar panel makers and so they, they turned out to be horrendous investments uh-huh. but the solar industry, and they, by the way, this happens to um, microchips all the time too. They they have oversupply um, 
problems and then there's a glut and then there's a, a collapse in the stock prices of a lot of these companies. Same thing happened with solar. And the, the lower prices have led to a continuing increase in solar installations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so solar power itself is growing like crazy. For, to take just China as an example, mm-hmm. um, they, they had five gigawatts of solar power installed in 2007, and next year they'll, they'll have 30 gigawatts. Wow. So six-time increase in, in what, six years. And uh, that, that's the biggest single story, but on a smaller scale, it's happening everywhere else in the world, too, because... Um, Solar has gotten cheap enough that with reasonably modest subsidies, it's attractive. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the really interesting thing about solar is that it, it um, you know, you can make solar farms in the desert and everything. They're, they're very expensive to do, but with subsidies, utilities are, are choosing to do that. But solar is interesting for distributed power generation. In other words, you can slap solar panels on your Southern California home's roof and instantly start generating enough electricity that you're sending power back into the grid and getting paid for it. Uh-huh. So during the daytime when the sun's out, you actually make money, and we make the grid a lot more robust because we don't have just a few big power plants that can be sabotaged or whatever mm-hmm. or break down. You've got 10 million rooftops all generating electricity, and you know, each one immune from problems with the others. Mm-hmm. And so, so solar, at least in the sunnier parts of the world, has a phenomenal future. And the, the question for, for investors is, at what point does demand catch up to supply and start allowing the solar panel makers to turn good profits again and become interesting investments? We're not there yet, but uh, the, the time is probably um, a year or two out, assuming that the world doesn't fall apart in the meantime, which is, uh, you know, subject for a separate conversation <laughs> and a big possibility. But well, we have to live our lives as if it won't, because if we put our heads in the sand, uh, obviously we, we're going to suffocate. What about, uh, what are some names in the solar space that, uh, that you might, do you have some that you could, that you could name? People could watch those investments or watch those, those companies and uh, when the time is right, jump on them? Yeah, okay, well there, there are two sectors of solar companies that you should be watching. One is the, the big Chinese solar panel makers. They're, they're a big problem or a big part of the glut because China basically went for it a few years ago. They just mm-hmm. subsidized everybody in sight. And so their solar panel makers got very big. Um, LDK Solar, Yingli Solar, SunTech Power, uh, companies like that became huge players in this industry. And then they tanked along with everybody else. So um, what we need is a few of them to be flushed out, basically. And so watch them, see if a few of them go bankrupt or a few others from elsewhere in the world go bankrupt. And that'll help to, to bring the, the supply, supply down. demand equation. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, you, you want to look for the survivors. You know, who, who is so efficient that they will come through this in, in decent shape and then be ready to grow like crazy? And uh, one good possibility is First Solar. They're, they're an American company with uh, an innovative thin film technology. They're, they're mm-hmm. the leader in, in that niche mm-hmm. and they get a lot of utility uh, contracts where they'll, they'll, they'll work with a, a German utility to uh, to put up a, a you know a solar farm somewhere in a, in a sunny part of Europe where they're doing the same thing in China now and so they they seem to have a pretty good chance of surviving you know their stock price has just tanked in the mm-hmm. past few years mm-hmm. which means they they might be pretty cheap in retrospect, you know, looking back from, from two, yeah. years, two years in the future, you know, mm-hmm. I think this was a great time to buy. And I don't know about that yet, but I think they, they look like a survivor and they look like one of the companies that are going to be big players going forward. 
What about, we've got three minutes left, my engineer tells me. So what about wind? Is there any, any, any names there that you think might be worth investors taking a look at? Well, wind is a, um, a utility scale. Okay, so we're, you know, so we're really looking at utility companies. Are there some that you know of that, that are in that space more than others? Well, General Electric uh-huh. is the biggest American producer of wind turbines. Okay, so that and would be one. So, yeah, that, that's one that uh, American customers recognize. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not their only business by any means, but um, that, that's something that's growing for them. And then Vestas is a European maker of wind turbines. I think they're still the biggest in the world. And uh-huh. so that, that's more of a pure play. Mm-hmm. What is the name of that? Investus? Vestas, V-E-S-T-A-S. V-E-S-T-A-S. And they trade, trade in the U.S. by any chance? Um, you know, I'm not sure if they sure. do now. They trade on all the European exchanges. Okay. So with, you know, with most brokerage accounts, you can buy their stock. John, one of the one of the issues with the renewables, and there's so many more to talk to you about. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask about animal waste, uh, to, you know, biofuels, and of course uh, geothermal and all that. But it doesn't wouldn't apply to geothermal. But a lot of the renewables is the ability to store the energy and have it available when you need it. So, you know, you mentioned in Southern California, if there's uh, the sun is. Uh, in the in the daytime, you can sell that excess electricity back into the grid. But wind, for example, and some other things. I mean, isn't the big the big issue is having the energy available when you want it? And are there some battery technologies out there now that might be making some progress along those lines that investors might want to take a look at? Oh, Jay, I'm glad you brought this up because batteries are really the key to the whole show. Uh-huh. Because um, most. Um, alternative energy sources are inter- intermittent, as you said. They don't pump out energy continuously, and that, that's a huge disadvantage. So to be able to store that power uh, makes everything possible, and it also makes electric cars possible. Right now, we, we aren't quite there yet. You know, battery mm-hmm. technology won't let an electric car perform um, in the way we're, we've gotten used to gas-powered cars performing. But mm-hmm. that's coming. You know, lithium-ion battery technology is getting a little better every year, and there are breakthroughs all over the place in labs, um, you know, across the world that, uh, that all sound phenomenal. <laughs> you know, when, let, let's see if they get to the market. But if they do, you know, we're talking five or ten times the performance of today's batteries. And on a utility scale, to be able to store sol- solar power in the daytime and then pump it back out at night makes, um, and the same thing with wind, makes those two technologies viable for um, utility-scale energy production. And, and there are a few that are starting to work, a few technologies. There, there's one called flow batteries that is basically a big chemical battery, but not, not constrained by size like our other batteries are. You know, they can make the, the tanks of chemicals as big as they want, and then the chemicals store the power and then and put it back out at night or whatever or when the wind isn't blowing. Okay, John, and, we're, we're unfortunately we're out of time. Any names in the battery space? Not yet. You know, okay. the, the battery right. space is mostly um, still in the, uh, the private, or, you know, private company realm. There aren't a lot yeah. of big public companies yeah. there. John, so much more to talk to you about. We're out of time, unfortunately. I can't do anything about that. Uh, we'll look to have you back again sometime in the near future, I hope. Great. I'd like that, Jay. Thanks. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be back with some closing thoughts on today's show and uh, tell you who our next week's guest will be. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
recently recommended Northern Free Gold to my subscribers because its nearly 6 million gold equivalent ounce resource can lead to a major rise in its share price. The company's Yukon project is in a politically safe jurisdiction, far from population centers, and it is advantaged with road access and nearby electricity. A large deposit and a vision of positive economics should make Northern Free Gold an acquisition target. The potential upside, in my view, for these shares is major. Blue Sky Uranium is a leading pioneer in the exploration for uranium in the Patagonia region of Argentina. Their exploration success has attracted one of the world's largest multinational nuclear power companies to fully fund Blue Sky's exploration programs. Argentina is very focused on nuclear to provide for their energy needs, yet they do not currently produce the required uranium to feed the reactors. Blue Sky has opened up a new frontier for exploration for uranium in Argentina with an objective of supplying both domestic and and international markets. Bravada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, with just some closing thoughts on today's show. Um, was re- really, really happy to talk to Brent Cook again, who has, I think, some great ideas uh, and some knowledge, really great knowledge about investing in the mining space and uh, especially among exploration companies. I, I, really, uh, I really enjoy having Brent on and think that um, he's very much worth listening to. He had some ideas, certainly <clears throat> uh, some good ideas in terms of Investing in, um, uh, in in the project generators, I, I think he and I are on the same page with regard to that. Naomi Ariskus, I think, uh, is is really outstanding. She provided, I think, her book is is very very worthwhile reading. It's it's a very interesting book. It's very easy to read. She puts science uh, into lay terms so that we can all understand it, uh, and it really talks about the. Uh, uh, the issues of, of politics and how they intersect with reality. Uh, you know, what is really true is what we, what we really try to get to on this show. That's really what, what I'm concerned about. And in so many areas of our lives, we, we are subject to spin all the time from the vested interests, from the policymakers, from the people that control the policymakers in our, uh, in our media is really controlled to such a great extent by those folks. Uh, and uh, and and what we are taught uh, or told to believe, and if they keep saying it often enough, we uh, we start to believe it, unfortunately. And so, what we try to do on this show is to dig underneath the surface. And I think, you know, I was a skeptic about global warming. I didn't want to believe that global warming was human caused by humans because I don't want more government intervention. But neither does Na- Naomi Oreskes, and she mentioned some of the early scientists that worked. Uh, in the global warming space were, were absolutely not ideologues. They weren't 
uh, you know, crazy environmentalist, left-wing communist pinkos. They were people that were really looking at the science. So I think, you know, it's, um, it's beholden to all of us to try to understand what is really going on as good citizens. Uh, and those of us who, is, who love liberty especially should be doing this because we... Uh, because what good is it going to do us if, uh, you know, if, if hurricanes wipe us all out? Uh, John Robino had some great ideas, I think, in terms of the, um, uh, of investing in, in, uh, green technologies. Uh, certainly I want to talk to John more in the future and look at these things. Of course, I'm not asking anybody to sacrifice profits and go out and buy things just because they want, they want to feel good about a cleaner environment. But educate yourself, understand what's going on so that you can talk intelligently about it. I will mention there is a company that's going to come on as a sponsor in January. Uh, called Blue Gold, and this is a company that has a nanotechnology that appears to be extremely successful and commercial in cleaning up dirty water and making it into uh, potable or drinking water. Also, very successful, seemingly, in um, tailings recoveries or remediation of uh, polluted tailings, so for mining projects and so forth, and they have uh, apparently moving towards uh, some business plan in South Africa to clean up huge amounts of tailings. This is a company that I believe may be highly profitable. I have invested in it. They are going to be a sponsor on this show. We will have them on to talk about it. And uh, when I get off this, uh, finish talking about uh, today on this show, I'm going to talk to John Robino about it, who voiced an interest in it. Well, that is really all the time that we have. Uh, next week we are going to uh, we're we're going to have uh, Dr. Gerald Schroeder. We're going to talk uh, a little bit about his book. Uh, well, we'll talk for about a half an hour anyway. The Science of God, a very interesting book. Uh, Dr. Schroeder is an MIT professor, former MIT professor, a famed nuclear scientist. Uh, you're not going to want to miss what he has to say. Uh, about uh, about that issue. We're going to also talk to Alistair McLeod about gold and silver. Alistair thinks that we're coming into a major squeeze in the gold and silver markets that could cause the prices to go absolutely berserk on the upside. In closing, I want to thank the staff at uh, Voice America, Tacey Trump and Marta Wiedemer, uh, for making this show uh, logistically viable. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.